guys. Welcome to podcast episode number 29 on the podcast Positive Impact with Andrew Schultz. I'm here today with a very special guest, a friend of mine, uh, Bob Newton. Uh, we are up in Palm Desert, California, and the story of Bob and I and our family and how things have come full circle and uh, what God is doing for my life and my family's life, what we can't do for ourselves. Uh, it's a pretty amazing story. So Bob is, um, he is the director of clinical services uh, at Dr. Harry Hartunian's office here in Palm Desert, California. He has been a certified drug and alcohol counselor since 1986. Um, I met Bob about nine years ago um, when my father went to Betty Ford Center um, and Bob was my dad's counselor. And you'll see as we flow through this podcast, um, how things came full circle. As most of you know, I'm from Nebraska. Bob played football at Nebraska, uh, All-American 1970, part of the national championship team, the first national championship team under Dr. or um, under Coach Devaney. Got drafted in the third round by the Chicago Bears, played for 12 years? 11 years. 11 years in the NFL, five for the Bears, six for the Seahawks. And um, so I'm here with Bob Newton. Bob, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It was a great uh that we got this set up. I always enjoy seeing you, talking to you, and reminiscing about your dad. So it, this is a very special podcast um, just because of what Bob has meant to me and my family, uh, literally saving my dad's life, um, you know, nine years ago, Christmas morning, which we will get to later on in the podcast. But Bob, I want to start, I want to take it all the way back, growing up in California. Tell us what it was like growing up. Let's start out at the beginning. Well, yes, I, I was born and raised in Southern California, in I was born in Pomona and raised in La Mirada, California, and went to went through high school there and junior, junior college, and then went on to the University of Nebraska. That was uh, in 1969. Was really the first year they started recruiting uh, football players out here in California. Coach Osborne was in charge of that and. Uh, the philosophy was that just they wouldn't recruit out here because a lot of the the California kids won't go back to where they, it gets a little cold in the winter in the, yeah. mid, in the Midwest. So hold that thought. Right? Hold that thought. Sure. I want to take it back even further. You didn't play high school. You didn't play football until you were a sophomore in high school. Right. I, you know, I always went to the Pop Warner games. You know, when I was a child, in 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and I loved watching Pop Warner football. But I was always, I was either too heavy, too tall. I was, you know, I, I didn't meet the weight expectations. So, so I got to high school and I was, I was really floundering in high school. My freshman year, I, I flunked two classes. Uh, I, I was starting, you know, I, I'd been arrested a couple of times by then already for loitering and just, I was really on a wayward path. Mm -hmm. And the athletic director there at John Glenn High School, his name was Norman Hayes. He, came, he said, look, I was at PE one day. He goes, you know, uh, you got good size on you. Have you ever thought about playing football? And I said, no. He goes, why don't you give it a shot? The next day, I went out there and uh, as a sophomore in, in, in high school. And uh, I didn't know how to get on a stance, uh, in a three-point stance. I mean, uh, I didn't know how to put on my shoulder pads. They had to help me do everything. <laughs> and so... And so it was. It was quite a show, and you know, I mean, I it was it was quite a show. So I that year was a long year because I got my butt kicked a lot that year because I didn't know how to play, and and I was kind of a slow learner. And then, but I got inspired because uh, you know I really liked the game of football. I liked I liked linemen. I liked put my my hand down on the ground, and I liked the action in the middle. And slowly but surely, the next year I came back, my junior year, I got most improved player. That, well, that shows you how bad I was. So when I, my junior years, I was proud of that award, though. But uh, then my senior year, I got uh, alignment of the, of the year on the team and made all league. And each year, I got a little bit more incentive and inspired to keep playing. So then I went to junior college and uh, played two years there. And then after that, I was... I was pretty highly recruited. In fact, I was being recruited by Barry Switzler, who was an assistant coach at Oklahoma at that time, mm -hmm. Terry Donahue, 
who was the assistant coach at Kansas at that time, and Tom Osborne, who was assistant coach at Nebraska. All those assistant coaches, mm -hmm. they came to Cerritos College and, and talked to me. But coach Osborne had the biggest impact on me, and uh, I'm sure glad I made that choice to go to Nebraska. So that was 1969? That was 69, yeah. But you weren't recruited heavily out of high school. I had... I think I got one letter, and it was from Santa Barbara University, who doesn't even play football now. And uh, they said, well, I think it was just a standard letter, you know. And, and they said, uh, you know, we have some interest uh, for you, Bob. And But it's, I never got a phone call. So, no, there was absolutely no schools after me. And, <clears throat> and so the only – it, it, I was really grateful that the community college system here was really popular and really good coaches and highly recruited. So after I went there for two years, I matured a lot. I got on, I got on the weights. Mm -hmm. I, I worked out hard and I got better each year and I grew, you know, I got to six, four and I got up to about two forty, two forty five, And, uh, so, and that helped. Mm -hmm. And, but the passion for football each year got, got more and more intense. So I really, I really enjoyed playing football. And uh, from there, you know, it, it worked out really well going to Nebraska too. And in 1969, there was, tell the audience about your recruiting trip because it was January. Yeah. It was cold. Yeah. You flying from California. Tell us about that. Well, that's a great question. I, <laughs> I got off the plane and we, we landed in Lincoln and I think the windows were kind of iced up already. And, uh, we, they opened the door and I walk out down the down the stairs from the plane and you know they didn't have you had to walk across the the pavement into the into the they didn't have what do you call those they didn't have the the run with the the terminal to walk through right yeah so you had you had to walk I had about a fifty yard walk so I had this California mustache on and I got about twenty yards from the airplane thing was frozen <laughs> and I said. And I had this California jacket on that was it was it had no use at all in this weather, none. So, Coach Osborne and Coach Jim Ross, who uh, they were both there waiting for me at the at the terminal at the window or at the door there, and they saw me coming. And I looked at them and I gave them a look like, you know, this ain't going to work out too. Just going to let you know. <laughs> So, uh, and they looked at me like, well, it's, it's a little cold, Bob. It's usually not this cold in January. Something like that, you know? Yeah, right. So Mildly anyway, cool. Yeah, so, you know, I was there for two days, and I love the people in Nebraska. That The people, and Bob Devaney had the big impact on me. Because they had, the people had passion for football. And I had passion for football. So I thought that was a, a great connection. And, uh and I ended up, yeah, I, I, kind of sidetracked a little bit. I really wanted to go to SC, and I've told this story before, but they showed some minimal interest in me, but not a, not enough. So, mm -hmm. so Nebraska Coach Osborne was a hard worker in mm -hmm. recruiting, and they were they were desperate to get get some guys out there to fill in at certain spots to help them uh, because they had just come off two six and four mm -hmm. records, and so the fans weren't too happy about that. So. And the passion Bob talks about for people listening is, you know, we don't have, we, cause I'm from Nebraska. So I'll always be a Husker, even though I live in San Diego, but we don't have any professional sports teams. There's no NFL, there's no baseball, football, basketball team. So Nebraska football is, is the, the thing to do. That's what the passion is because um, we don't have that, that sports franchise um, at a professional level. So that's what Bob, that's what you experienced in 1969 and 1970 and, you know, Husker Power, yeah. uh, what Boyd Epley started your first year there, I think, that winter conditioning. 1969, yeah. Uh, so they, so Bob, Bob Terrio and I, who was another uh, JC recruit that came, we both came together, Coach Osborne recruited us together. And we drove, we drove, when we finally both said we're coming, and they, we got the scholarship signed and everything, and then we, we drove to Lincoln, and... Everybody, when we got there, we'd been there about, I don't know, four or five days, and everybody said, hey, uh, they've got this winter program that they're going to roll out for the first time this this offseason. Mm -hmm. So we hear it's pretty tough. So you guys, hope you guys have been working out. 
and and we hadn't really worked out because you know we've been recruiting everything. And I tell you, this winter program was gruesome. And I think it was twelve stations, twelve to fifteen minutes each station. It was full speed agility drills, you name it, and it toughened us up, and that was a contributing factor. And also, as you said, Boyd Apley had just started. They just hired him as a volunteer to uh, run the, the weightlifting station of that, of that winter program. And uh, so he was, he was a big addition to the, the, the program that year. And we all got on the weights. And I had already been lifting weights. I, I was enthusiastic. Weights had already demonstrated to me that uh, it was important to lift weights because you can overpower people. Mm -hmm. And you got endurance in the fourth quarter and so forth. So that winter program really toughens us up. We went into that 69 season with nine and two. Uh, we beat Oklahoma down there in Norman. Mm -hmm. The first time Coach Devaney had ever beaten Oklahoma in Norman. Mm -hmm. So it was a great year. And I think it really propelled the national championship. That 69 team really helped us propel to national championship caliber the next year. So that 1970 team, your senior year, because you went to junior college for two years. Right. right. Um, you guys, your second game at SC, yes. 1970, the team right. that you, the place that you wanted to go, now you get a chance to kind of get redemption. Oh, right? yeah. I, or resentment, I think you said in the yeah, previous resentment, year. See, resentment is, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, resentment is really good for football. And, you know, On the football field, resentment is yeah, good. Yeah. But, yeah, when I went to treatment, though, for my alcoholism, drug addiction, said, Resentment is your number one offender. And I go, oh, oh I've got some work to do here. So <laughs> still, still working on it. Uh, but, yeah, so they kind of snubbed their nose at me. And, and I love at USC. I, you're, if you're Southern California high school kids playing football, everybody wants to go to USC. And Ron Yeri was a, just a legendary offensive tackle, a good friend of mine. And uh, I, I wanted to follow. He's three years older than me. And I really wanted to follow his path there, but you know, it just wasn't, it, it just didn't happen. They, they, they decided to recruit another way. So yeah, I remember being in the huddle uh, that night for Nebraska and, and looking over the sidelines at John McKay, like, Hey, uh, well, you know, how's it going, John? So <laughs> the head coach at USC at the time. The head, yeah. The head coach at USC. So I had, I had made my point and, uh, and it was a tough game. We ended up tying 21 to 21, but, uh, it was a nice uh, feeling of redemption, I think. You know? And so that year, you win the rest of the games. You play LSU in the Orange Bowl. Right. Earlier that day, Notre Dame upsets Texas. Right. Right? And Texas was number one. Yes, they've been number one for the last two years. And then Stanford upset Ohio State. Yeah. Ohio State was number two. Yep. We, Nebraska, were number three going yep. into that game. Yep. It was a phenomenal – the way things – worked out. It was like a domino effect. And uh, I'll never forget when I heard those scores, I heard the scores of the Cotton Bowl and Notre Dame and Joe Theismann, Joe Theismann just had, you know, they just had a great game against Texas and knocked them out. Texas was undefeated up until then. And then we were on the bus going to the Orange Bowl get, to get ready. And it was announced that, that the Stanford Indians had beaten uh, Ohio State. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, the blood, the, the bus it just went wild, you know, because now, so Ohio State was undefeated. So the two, the number one and number two teams are knocked out mm. uh, and they were undefeated. Now, we were undefeated except for that blemish with the, the tie with SC, 21-21. But we knew if we beat LSU that there, there wouldn't be, there couldn't be another choice because mm. everybody under us had at least a loss yep. or, or two. So. It was a tough game, that Orange Bowl game. LSU were tough. They were tough football players. They weren't very big football players, but they were pretty quick, and uh, they never gave up. And uh, so we had it. You know, we went ahead, I think, 10 to nothing, and I think we kind of got over, a little overconfident and thought, well, we're just going to blow these guys out because, you know, our last three games, we had just – we just been powerful, but they stuck in there. We make a few mistakes here and there, and it it, it went down to the fourth quarter. Uh, in fact, they went ahead of us twelve to ten in the fourth quarter, and we had to we had to make a, I think about a seventy yard drive to go ahead of them seventeen to twelve to to win the game. But that's the one that Jerry Taggy 
as his arm stretched out yeah. for the touchdown. And tell us about the Bob Devaney quote after the game. That's oh, about Notre well, Dame because Notre yeah. Dame they thought they earned the right because they upset. And so what was Bob right. Devaney's quote after the game? Yeah, well, there was a lot of controversy that Notre Dame should be number one. Yeah, and so uh, they 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 interviewed Coach Devaney after the game in the locker room, and they asked him about that. The next day in the and on the uh, I think it's the Miami the Miami Herald's the main paper there. I mean, on the front page of the sports page, it has Coach Devaney saying, saying, even the Pope couldn't vote Notre Dame number one. And, and it's got a picture of Coach Devaney with his finger up, you know, is, is, we're number one. So, I mean, what a, what a line. It was, yeah. it was great. And we had the, the, voting, the voting we had, we won it pretty easily, you know. But uh, Coach Devaney had quite a sense of humor. He could come up with some lines. And that was the first national championship in school history, 1970. Yeah, it was. And that, that was another thing I was really proud to be part of for the Nebraska fans because Coach Devaney came in there in 62 and just turned the program around and they just really had some great years. And they got close to the national championships against Alabama and you know, some other schools, but they just couldn't get over the, the, the goal line with it. But So to bring that first national championship home, was a, a great honor and it was a great gift to the to the people in Nebraska. And you know, it's it's so special because here I am born in Nebraska, you know, grew up going to all the games. Uh, I didn't I wasn't alive in 1970, but I heard everybody knew about that first national championship team and then the 71 team and then the legacy of Nebraska football grew. So to be here sitting talking to you, to hear it like firsthand what it was like and just to hear it, it just means so much. It's so cool as a person from Nebraska yeah. and, uh, and just what Bob Devaney and what your team in 1970 yeah. started that rich tradition. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. It's, I can tell you, you've done your research and you weren't even born yet. And you know, those, you knew those teams. That's a really, very, you're from Nebraska. There's no doubt. Yeah. The, the 71 team just really, really, uh, just propelled and you know they're recognized as one of the greatest teams ever yep. in college football and uh, I, you know I stay in touch with a lot of those guys still Jeff Kinney and Van Bronson and uh, Jerry Murtaugh from the 70 team but Keith Workman uh, just it, it was just a, a dynasty had had begun there for the next several several years and with coach Osmer taking over I think in 73 was his first year and again, you know, Husker Power had a, a tremendous contribution to that uh, dynasty because of the you, you would Nebraska football would usually dominate the fourth quarter, mm -hmm. and a lot of that I think was because of the weightlifting and the extra time in the weight room of and, and just the commitment and making making it making football players more mentally tough yeah. for for that sacrifice. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. A great, it was a great run, you know, for years. And I was so happy when Coach Osmer got his first championship because he came so close too, yep. you know, and then he got his in 94. Yep. And that's still one of the, the greatest games uh, that I've ever watched or that I've, I mean, cheered for because, you know, I was, I wanted Coach Osmer to get that national championship so bad. And it was a, it was a phenomenally tough game and they, they took it and they, dominated the fourth quarter and won it yep. against Miami. Yep. And then, okay, so you, you graduate, you don't graduate, you come back later to graduate from Nebraska, but you go to the Bears. You get drafted in the third round. Yeah. You go to Chicago. Yeah. And then you play there. Tell, tell, tell us about the transition college football to pro, going from a winner to not a winner. It was, uh, you know, there's a reason they call it professional football because those the it's a, it's definitely a um, a significant jump to another level. Mm. Uh, you're getting paid now for it. You know, you're playing with men that have been playing for years. You know, some five, six, eight, nine years, who know the in and ins and outs of their position and their experience. So there's there's a learning the real learning curve for young kids coming into that mm. type of environment, but. You know, one of the first days I walked in the locker room, uh, I saw Dick Buckus getting dressed to go out to practice. I go, 
you know, I was, I mean, it was kind of like, are you kidding me? I'm in the same locker room with Dick Butkus because I'd been watching him and he was such a phenomenal. And then Gail Sayers was in the locker room. Now they were both recovering from knee problems. Mm -hmm. And so that was a little, a little tough, but that rookie year was the year they filmed uh, Brian's song. Mm. And it was in Rensselaer, Indiana at our, at our training camp. So, <clears throat> so, you know, Billy D. Williams and James Conn were walking around our training camp. And, you know, a lot of us were saying, hey, who are these guys? What are these guys rookies? Are they free agents? Or, you know, when are they going to practice? You know, and they were actually waiting there to, we would get off the field and they'd go out there and film mm. the Brian song. Yep. But, you know, that first year was just kind of introduction. Uh, one thing I'm very grateful for is they moved me to offensive guard. Uh, I was a left tackle for off, left offensive tackle for Nebraska. And about in the middle of the year, they moved me to offensive right guard for the Bears. And it, the guard position was just a much better fit for me and for in the pros because I liked to run. We were still running and trapping a lot, running sweeps. And so... Uh, you know, I, I kind of just learned a lot that first year. And Jim Ringo, who was a NFL Hall of Famer for the Packers, was my line coach. And then, then they fired that whole crew, and Abe Gibran took over in 72. And then I, I started in the lineup for the next three years. And then, you know, things just went downhill after about, you know, we, we had continuous losing seasons. And uh, after my fifth year, it was time to move on. And, and then you go to the Seattle Seahawks, 1976 expansion team at that time, right? Yeah, 1976. And when I was with the Bears, I was with the Bears in the 76 exhibition season. I, I was still with them. Uh, they didn't get rid of me until the end of the exhibition season of 76. So the second game of that exhibition season was against the Seattle Seahawks. So. We're in Chicago. We get on a plane. We fly to Spokane, Washington, and we we play this new expansion team uh, in 1970, the Seattle Seahawks, in a stadium in Spokane called Joe Alvey Stadium. And it, I don't know how many people, but it was, it, it, you know, it was nothing near a professional football stadium. Okay, it was kind of like a big high school stadium, you know. And so we're in there playing, and we end up beating the Seahawks. I don't know four or five, maybe a touchdown or two. But I remember being on the plane on the way back to Chicago after that game. I'm thinking, you know, things aren't going too good here in Chicago. I know I'm on my way out, but at least I'm not with that Seattle Seahawks team, expansion team. Man, am I lucky. <laughs> two weeks later, I'm headed to Seattle. As a player. To be, as, to be with the Seattle Seahawks uh, they picked me up. They picked me up off waivers, and I go. And I remember on that plane thinking, "How bad is my career going to get now?" You know, because <laughs> you know, you ask any pro that you go to an expansion team, it takes years, you know, to to get a winning season and, and so forth. But you know what? I went there, met the guys, the coaches, and it was a beautiful area to play football in mm. Seattle and the organization was first class mm. from day one. And you were there for six years. I was there for six years. Could have probably, I, I, it could have been extended, but my alcoholism and drug addiction continued to progress mm. each year. And it really took its toll in 80, 81 and 82. It started really uh, taking away my ability to perform. So, Great segue, July twelfth, nineteen eighty-three. Big day. Yeah, that was that was a big day in my life. I that's the day I went into treatment for for alcoholism, drug addiction, at a place called Valley General Hospital in Monroe, Washington, mm -hmm. and it's still there. It's changed names, but they still treat people there. And the and the staff there was just, you know, I remember the nurse. Her name was Maureen. You know, and I remember what she looks like because I was, I got it. I, when I checked myself in, uh, I had been there about two or three hours. I said, you know what? I want to get out of here. You know, I, I'm not ready for this. I can do this on my own. You know? <laughs> I've heard so, that before. Yeah. I mean, so, so I, I got ready. I started packing my bags and I, I was going to take off. And of course, they call that AMA against medical advice, you know. Because there was definitely nobody's approval that I should be leaving. 
that's for sure. So uh, I had my bags packed and this nurse came up to me. She goes, you know, Bob, she goes, I think you're between a rock and a hard place. Mm -hmm. You know, and I was kind of under the influence mm -hmm. a little bit then. And I stopped. I said, okay, a rock and a hard. Now, what does that mean exactly? So I started analyzing that phrase that she said. And she was right. You know, I came in there for a reason. And it's kind of like the program says, you know, you're, you're either on the fence. You know, you don't know what to do. You don't want to keep drinking and using, but, you, you know, you're afraid to stop or you don't know if you can stop. And that's where I was. I was on the fence. And uh, but she made she made a lot of sense to me. And uh, I ended up staying. And thank God I completed that program. And it really changed me from that day on about the, my attitude and approach to alcohol and other drugs and how, how it's been a part of my life and and then I'm grateful that it's not a part of my life now. Mm. So you leave there, you reconnect with Coach Osborne. I wrote Coach Osborne in the while I was in treatment. I said, Coach, I'm in I'm in trouble. Uh, I'm in an alcohol drug treatment center, and I just want you to know that I'm getting some help though, and mm. that's the good thing about it. And he wrote me right back, and it was that was in July. They were in summer camp, I think. But he, he wrote me right back. He goes, Bob, I'm really happy that you're getting help. And when you get out of out of there, if you want to come back here to school and finish your degree, mm -hmm. and I'll put you to work as a graduate assistant offensive line coach for our freshman kids. Mm -hmm. And that gave me hope. I said, well, I, it, you know, he gave me some uh, some hope that there's because, you know, I was done with football mm -hmm. as far as being a player. And uh, so. I waited six months. I worked on my sobriety, went to a lot of meetings, and just worked and got that foundation set. And then I went back to Lincoln and entered school. Took me two years to get my bachelor's degree, coached for two years, a year and a half there, and then uh, got that bachelor's degree in 1985, I think, 86. Yeah. yeah. But people in Nebraska, I, I went to a lot of schools around there and spoke just met a lot of great people in recovery in the in the state of Nebraska when I was when I was living there for two and a half years so again that was another example of that state you know filling a mm -hmm. void for me mm -hmm. and uh, just coming through and, and providing direction in my life so you've been since that time a certified drug and alcohol counselor and yes so it's um like the second half of your life. And that's what you've been, been doing. a major second part of my life. Uh, really, it's the only work I've done outside of football mm -hmm. is, is alcohol drug counseling. And uh, started that at, at age 35. So I've been doing that for about, I'm 69 now. So it's been a while. Almost 35 years. Yeah. And seeing a lot of patients, I've seen this, the illness of chemical dependency take its toll on people. You know, I think it's miraculous that uh, people can get sober and stay sober. Mm. But I, I, I appreciate it as a miracle because, uh, and I don't want to throw it away for a one-night binge or two-night high on, on some drug, you know. It's, it's been too valuable to my life. Plus, I don't like consequences. Mm. And that's, you know, alcohol and drug, for me, if I went back to drinking and using, it would cause major consequences in my life. Don't want that. So this is the, the part where we reconnect or we connect for the first time. Um, Christmas morning, 2009, you are at Betty Ford Center here in Palm Desert, which is now, or Rachel Mirage, yeah. technically, which yeah. is now part of the Hazelden Group. Right. Um, my family, you know, Living back in Nebraska, I'm in San Diego at this time. This is 2009. Christmas morning, we do an intervention, John Southworth, uh, because my dad, um, he had fell at the bar, and he he was um, like a cat with nine lives. And I know my dad wouldn't mind us talking about this because this is the part of the story where we inspire hope for others because my dad at this time was, uh, you know, late sixties, um, gruff, tough, his way or the highway. <laughs> and so, um, 
my family and I decided to do an intervention. And my brother calls me, sends me a text message of a picture of my dad who had a huge shiner. And at that moment, we knew if we didn't do something for our father's um, alcohol uh, problem that he wasn't going to be around much longer. And we were already on borrowed time. And, you know, up until that point, every time I flew back to Nebraska to see my family, I would get back on the plane to fly back to San Diego. And I'd always cry because I knew my biggest fear in life was to give my father's eulogy at his funeral and not doing something to help save his life. And uh, by the grace of God, we did the intervention on Christmas morning, Omaha, Nebraska. It was one of the worst blizzards in like the state that morning. There was like one car on the road. It was ours. We're going to our father's house. He thought we're going to be opening Christmas presents. And it was me, (laughs) me, my brother, our high school football coach, and the interventionist from Betty Ford, John Southworth. We show up at my father's doorstep. He opens the door. We walk in. He was expecting presents, and um, I'll never forget that morning because for the next two hours, we sat in a circle. He was in the middle, and we had two letters written. Uh, First letter was, we love you. Can you please get help? Uh, Second letter was, if you don't get help, we're not going to be a part of your life. And it was two hours, and it was by the grace of God that he finally said yes, showing him pictures of his grandkids. Uh, I remember his sister, my Aunt Marilyn, wrote a letter that I read to my father before she passed. Um, And by the grace of God, he said yes. Most of the flights out of Omaha that day were canceled because of the weather. Omaha to Phoenix, Phoenix to Palm Springs, the flight, his flight, by the grace of God, was um, on as scheduled. And Christmas morning, 2009, we admit him to Betty Ford. And I remember I, you got a call. Yeah, I got a call from Dr. Harry Hartunian. And, uh, and we'd been working together for a few, quite a few years up to that point. Harry goes, he goes, hey, Bob, I got a, I got a patient here that it might be a good idea for you to come down and say hi to. And he goes, he's a big Nebraska football fan. And, uh, you know, he... Uh, so if you can come on down, he goes, I know it's Christmas and everything, but, you know, I think it'd be a pretty good idea. I said, you, absolutely. I'll be right down. So I got dressed and went down there and they had, they had Bill and the, uh, your dad in the lot, kind of the lobby kitchen area. And, uh, he gets up and comes to me. He had a big old shiner on, a, on his cheek. And above his, right around his eye and everything. I go, okay, yeah, he's, I'm sure he fell drunk. You know, that's what happens. And see that all the time. Yep. I go, hey, Bill, I see you got a, you took a pretty good fall there, huh? He goes, oh, no. Shoot, you know how it's cold there in Lincoln, Nebraska, in Omaha, Nebraska, Bob. It gets all icy. I slipped on the ice out there on the sidewalk. <laughs> and, and I, I said, oh, okay, uh, okay, well, we'll get to that later. So anyway, uh, it, your dad your dad was one of the most challenging <laughs> clients I've had in a long time. He was, he was one angry dude. Man. <laughs> when, when that door opened and, and all of you were out there, you know, he thought you were going to have just a great Christmas dinner. He goes, well, who's the stranger guy with it? There's some stranger with my family out beside the door on Christmas night or Christmas Eve. And and it was John Southworth, yep. of course, you know, who was a great friend of, of recovery mm-hmm. and has helped so many people with the interventions. But yeah, he it took it took us a while to 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 address the resentment over the over the intervention <laughs> on Christmas. And I said, you know what, Bill. This, you're going to be the greatest gift you've ever given your family mm. on Christmas Day if you get clean and sober. Mm. And he didn't see that. Uh, he didn't. He didn't understand that too too well at the time. But you know what? He hung in there, mm. and he did a very good job, and he's doing very well today. And God bless him, because I think he was he was close to the end stage. Yeah. Uh, if he wouldn't have got sober, like we all are, I was too. As was I. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, my father admitted in Betty Ford. 
he was here for 90 days. And I remember I came up that February, it was 2010, February, and uh, it was for the family program. And they, they put us up in the Holiday Inn over at Indian Wells. And I remember I went for a run the morning of our small group. And for the audience, just to kind of paint a picture, I'm at this point, I'm 30 years old. Uh, I never had the courage to speak up to my dad and tell him the impact of his drinking on my life and our family's life. And for the first time in my life, I was going to speak my truth to my father, who I was always very scared of. And, um, I just, I I remember crying and a song came on by Rascal Flatts and it, I started crying because this was an opportunity. I saw it. God was giving me an opportunity for healing in our family. Um, and to speak my truth. And I remember sitting in small group that day and telling my dad the impact of his drinking on our family impact of my life. Um, and there was so much healing that took place. And ever since that day, this relationship, this father son relationship with my father and I has just been magical. And that was the start of saying, I love you, healing wounds, um, bringing things to the light that were, stuffed in the darkness and by the grace of God, he's been sober. He'll be sober 10 years this coming Christmas. And he was the first person in our family to take on this addiction and, 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 you know, be in recovery and starting a new legacy for our family dynamic. And it's just, it's so amazing. And here he is, you know, he'll be, uh, he'll be, uh, he was born in 42. So he'll be uh, 78 in November. And I I never thought I would see him at 78. I just always had this fear of I was going to give his eulogy uh, at his funeral. He would never be sober. And um, Bob, you are you and Dr. Harry, because Bob mentioned Dr. Harry earlier. He was the medical director at Betty Ford at the time. I'm in their office now. They're both um, in the private sector now. And I just said hi to, to Dr. Harry before I walked into Bob's office for this podcast. And to see you and Dr. Harry, who literally saved my dad's life, helped save my life. Um, I cannot thank you enough for what you did helping my dad. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I commend Dr. Harry for calling me that night uh, because, you know, we always try to find ways to, to connect with patients and to keep the hope that they get motivated to want to stay and so forth, especially if they're in danger of, of wanting to leave mm-hmm. treatment. You know? So, you know, coming down that night after Dr. Harry called me and, and meeting your dad, and he, he was, he was a Nebraska football fan. We got right into mm-hmm. it right away uh, when I, you know, I told him I played and all that. And, and he was a high school he, coach he in Nebraska. Coach. Yeah, he was a coach. Yeah. And so, you know, another great Nebraskan that had football roots, you mm. know, so, and then, and then he ended up being on my, on my uh, caseload. So, uh, my counseling caseload. So we had, we had some, you know, we had some, uh, interesting conversations <laughs> for several weeks. So. <laughs> I'm sure you did. I'm sure but, you did. You know, when I, when we see each other today, it's like, uh, you know, it's like brothers, mm. you know, I really think a lot of your dad and, and I like teasing him a lot, and so it's and he does the same to oh, me. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a great connection, and God bless him. And he, you know, you're right. You know, when people get into their late sixties, it's a little bit harder. You know, they're saying, "Oh, what the heck? Why now?" You know. Mm-hmm. So he came in, and that intervention was a miracle. It truly was. Just everything that happened, the weather, the flights, yeah, the getting in here. The biggest miracle might be having you be his counselor because of the Nebraska connections. He wasn't taking direction from anybody. Yeah. And you, I, I, I truly believe this. You were the only person that could have helped him. Uh, and by the grace of God, you, it's just how things have unfolded. It's just, yeah. I'm so grateful my, on behalf of my family to Dr. Harry and yourself. Um, I'm just forever indebted and just so much gratitude for, for helping not only my father, but then helping me, which is the next part of the sobriety for the Schultz family. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, it was it was fun talking football with your dad because he knew Coach Devaney. They knew each other, and he knew football. He knew Nebraska football in and out. And uh, 
And so I had to be a football coach to him a few times, and, <laughs> you know, and, you know, we were, we're going to run the play and this is the way we're going to run the play. So he didn't like that sometimes, but he came around. So He wanted to call the play early he on. He wanted to call the play, yeah. And I go, no, no, you're not. I'm the coach. I'm the coach. And I know there's a good, there's a term that you like to use, coachable. Yeah, exactly. With, yeah, that's a great term that I think has helped me in my recovery is to take that, have that kind of attitude, you know, and have some humility mm-hmm. where I, I am coachable, I am teachable. You know, it, it, it's a challenge for because you know I want to I want to run everything or I know everything, and you know when people come in or they know how to get drunk and they know how to get loaded, but they don't know how to stay sober, mm-hmm. and that's where you got to keep an open mind and and be teachable and coachable. And I think with my dad getting sober and staying sober, when my addiction got me to my rock bottom, April thirtieth, two thousand fifteen. If it wasn't for my dad doing what he did and yeah. saying yes to sobriety and, and being in recovery and doing the work of what he did to get him to where he is today, there's I, I truly don't think I would have said yes because I he's because I didn't have that example to say, well, he if he didn't do it, I'm not gonna do right. it. Exactly. But I had no excuses left. And when he um on behalf of my family did the intervention on me and brought me to Betty Ford, the same place where my father went on April 30th, 2015. And you're still at Betty Ford with Dr. Harry. And I knew what you guys did for my father. It was, it's all part of this God's master plan that by, oh, it's only by the grace of God, these things happened. And then sure. I went to Betty Ford and I got sober because yeah. I was taking sleeping pills on my rock bottom days at a time that I didn't want to kill myself, but I didn't want to feel the way I was feeling. And I know my dad was reaching out to you for support and help and, um, you know, I just celebrated four years sobriety and Betty Ford has done so much. And now it's part of the Hazelden group, but um, now our family, my father and I both sharing this recovery, sharing our um, friendship with you and Dr. Harry, um, the fellowship, the community, the connections in the ripple effects of all of this that we're talking about. It's just, and that's why it's so important to bring you on because there's so many people that are struggling to inspire hope if you're 68, if you're 35, if you're 21, if you're 16, the great equalizer of addiction, it doesn't discriminate. You bet, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, And I think, I know your father must have a lot of gratitude that, you know, because of his sobriety, he was able to to participate in helping you. Mm -hmm. Because if he probably would have continued drinking, he wouldn't have seen the the concern for you, Mm -hmm. uh, most likely. But I remember talking to him a couple of times that he was concerned about you and he's got his eye on you and all that, you know, so I, I knew how much he cared about you and, and was hoping that at some point that you would, you would get that help. And, and, it, and thank God he was available mm-hmm. and, and, and was able to put that intervention together and that you, and I agree with you that you saw, he was kind of a role model yeah. and, and then you were, you know, you had some uh, comfortability of coming to, to the center yep. and knowing some people there, you know, that, that knew your dad. So it was a, it was a great, and I, I'm proud. I'm very proud of you because I know you had a significant problem. Like we all do. I tell people, nobody comes in here on a winning streak. Nope. You know, there's, there's stuff going on and, and you had your own stuff that was going on and you worked through it and you mm-hmm. stayed here and you followed directions and you were coachable. Yep. And so, um, yeah, it just means a lot to be here with you guys and to, because, you know, I was at a celebration of life last weekend, a guy 30 years old overdosed on heroin. And it's so, we, we hear the negative stories, the people have not making it. That's so important for me. That's why I started this podcast called Positive Impact to inspire hope for others that people can get through the toughest challenges of life, whether it's sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. And that's what this, that's what we're doing. Inspiring hope for other people that people can get through whatever that challenge is. Well, I agree, Andrew, because I think alcohol and drug addiction is, it's, it's, it's a significant, it has a significant impact on individuals in our whole society and mm-hmm. has a significant impact on families. I mean, it, it just, it just provides turmoils to families. And when there's someone in the family that's got a drink, and just there's so much worry and stress around it, and uh, 
So when families and family members get get the education and get the treatment and see that recovery is possible, and I I really believe in that word hope. If people that stay in their addiction, it's usually going to end up in hopelessness. Mm-hmm. Okay, people get sober and they you know it's it's. There's never a perfect time to go into treatment or anything to get that kind of help. But if they learn how to get clean and sober, there's hope. Yeah. You know, that there's hope in their life again. But the, the other way is just it's just hopelessness. So you and Dr. Harry, both for my father and I, I know I speak for both of us, you are two people who have been huge impacts in our life, in my life, to help me get, to get to where I am today. Who are some influential people that have helped you to get to where you are today that, you know, mentors or people who led by example that you can reference? Yeah. You know, I had a, a lady in, in Bellevue, Washington. Her name was Diane Hall, and she had been sober about, I don't know, 10 years when I was sent to her by my attorney because I had an EUI. And she started telling me then, Bob, you're suffering from alcoholism. And I just, I just erupted and I said, what are you talking about? I know what it did. I'm not on skid row. You know, you see that Cadillac outside in the parking lot, you know, and I, that's yours. Oh yeah. I was so defiant and so full of denial. And she goes, Bob, you come from a family of alcoholism and I think you got it. Mm-hmm. And I said, nah, no way I can handle this. Got two more DUIs. Then, so she was the one that started planting the seeds. And then when I went to treatment, my counselor there was his name was Don Anderson, and he had such an impact on me. Uh, he just died about two years ago. He had fifty years of sobriety, mm. but he had a great sense of humor, and uh, I, I I looked at him as my coach. You know, my coach in sobriety, and he coached me while I was in in treatment and how to do this deal. Mm. And it, he made treatment doable. You know, we'd laugh together, but at the same time, I was learning, and there was a time to be serious, too, you know, so he was just a, a miracle uh, as my counselor, and there's been a lot of people, you know, like that that hope that Coach Osmond gave me, you know, when I was in treatment, and I, mm-hmm. I wrote that letter to him, and you can, you, <clears throat> there's been other guys that's been helped by Coach Osborne, you know, with the, the way he, but he, he's, he's somebody that provides hope when, when you're down. You know, so he gave me that first avenue to go back and get my, my bachelor's degree. I had to get my bachelor's degree or I, I couldn't become a, a counselor. And then I went on and got my master's when I was 50. I find, and, I, and I finished that at 55. But, you know, that education piece was, was real important. But I think it started with that counselor. Mm-hmm. He, he's saying, you know, this is, this is, and they started teaching that. Chemical dependency is an illness. It's progressive. It's chronic. Mm. It has signs and symptoms like other illnesses, which kind of re- which did reduce some of the shame that I had that I couldn't control my alcohol because yeah. you know men control men can drink and yeah. men can control, and that shame disappeared when I when I started accepting that I'm sick. Mm. You know I got to get well. Mm. Um. As you look back over your life, Bob, what is the legacy that you want to leave behind? I, 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 I like to leave the legacy uh, how much I care <clears throat> about sobriety and recovery and having the inspiration for others to see that, they, like you were saying earlier, that they can do it. Mm. Uh, I like to, to leave a legacy of how much I care about the Nebraska, the state of Nebraska and mm-hmm. the fans there and the passion that I had for Nebraska football player as a player. And those two things, recovery and football, I have a minimal family now. Mm-hmm. A lot of my family members have died off and I've remained single most of my life. So, you know, they don't have a lot of family legacy, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, the, the sobriety and the football legacy, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. And thank God I got sober. Well, um, thank you for saying that. I think, you know, the, the the podcast is called Positive Impact. The positive impact you've had on me and my family alone 
But over the 35 years you've been doing this, the impact you've had on so many other people, I know just seeing you at what you've done at Betty Ford from my time there and my father's time there, plus everybody else you've touched, I can assure you that legacy is being passed on. And so I just want to recognize and honor you for the work that you've done. I want to let you know how grateful I am on behalf of my family for everything you've done for us. I'm truly grateful um, in your friendship and support. I can't thank you enough. Um, thank you for coming on and just kind of sharing your story and having this conversation. Is there anything else you want to tell the audience and leave them with before we go? No, I just, I really appreciate you coming down here from San Diego, Andrew. And, and as we discussed this a few, a few weeks ago that we we're going to do this and because it's kind of like, you know, today's AA's birthday, it's June 10th. You know, it's kind of like when uh, Bill W. and Dr. Bob uh, met, uh, it was, it, and they started helping each other. And that's how, that's how people get well. It's one person mm -hmm. helping the other person and, and showing that they care about them and, 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 and showing them another way to live where they don't have to continue on, on, on an addiction path that basically will just lead to death. So I didn't know it was AA's birthday today. Yeah, June 10th. <laughs> June 10th. 80, oh my goodness. 84 year birthday that, today. So if, it, if that's, <laughs> this is, I, you can't make this stuff up. You cannot make so, this stuff up. But it reminded me of that, how they, those two chat and talk. And two alcoholics having a conversation, yeah, and talking and, to each other. Yeah. Yeah. Bill, Bill said he was getting ready to drink and he went over, he found, he went to that church directory mm. and they, they sent him over to Dr. Bob. <laughs> Dr. Bob was the acknowledged alcoholic in town. You know, everybody knew he was an alcoholic. So they sent him over there. Ah, man. That's how it started. In Akron, Ohio. I had no idea. If that's not God and the universe doing for us what we can't do for ourselves and bringing us together on this day, the 84th anniversary. That's yeah. pretty amazing. So, um, so Bob, uh, phone number for you and Dr. Harry, it's 760-674-0005. Let me repeat that for the audience. If you want to get a hold of Bob or Dr. Harry, uh, their private practice here in Palm Desert, it's 760-674-0005. I will also put that number and how to reach Bob and Dr. Harry both on social media. I will put their handles in the show notes. So if you guys want to reach out to Bob or Dr. Harry uh, directly, um, they are the best in the business. Um, I personally know firsthand on what they've done for me and my family. Um, and these guys are the best in the business. If you guys know anybody, uh, if you have friends or loved ones or other people who are struggling and need help, again, these guys are the best in the business and I can't... Um, recommend them enough. Um, Bob, thank you again, man. We'll do it again soon. Thanks for all that you do. Um, I love you, man. And uh, we will uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. I look forward to it. All right, guys. Have a good day.